Good afternoon. Today we're going to be thinking about programs. In a sense, reasoning about programs is what this, this module is about. Trying to get us to a position where we don't just hack something into the computer and then fiddle around with it until it passes a few test cases but actually being able to think about an algorithm, convince ourselves that it is likely to work. don't believe you can ever be absolutely sure, no matter how hard you think about it, but I want to get us to the point where we can be confident that something is going to, to work, where we can reason about its complexity, as well as its correctness. So, I started to talk last week about the complexity of different algorithms and in the, the tutorial we looked at um, some examples of this and perhaps the, the simplest one was the um, the poisoning situation where we had 128 glasses and we could either sample all of them, which would be 128 tests, 
or we could mix half of them together and test that, which converted it to just seven tests, which is a significant improvement. And thinking about that before we dived in and started doing the, the testing would make a big difference. And of course that applies to any programs. So what I'm going to, <coughs> to do today is to start off with um, a problem that I'm, I'm sure you've, you've seen before, which is that of searching an array. And we will compare the straightforward approach with a binary search approach. Then I will look at um, quite a famous program, which at first sight looks a bit frivolous. Why would you want to, to do that? But is in fact um, a useful algorithm. can be used in a, a number of areas. And we will try to develop an algorithm for doing that by thinking about it carefully. And then finally, I want to look at um, sets, the set data type, and how we can implement that efficiently. And that will have two benefits. In the near future, we're going to start talking about formal specifications, and they require us to know about sets and the set operations, so it'll be a bit of revision, and it will also give us some practice at thinking about comparing potential algorithms. So, hopefully by the end of today, we'll be able to talk about the complexity of some well-known algorithms, reason about the correctness before we implement them, and we will know more about sets, or at least what you already know about sets, we will revise. <coughs> okay, searching an array, looking for a particular value in an array. And for simplicity, um, it doesn't actually matter whether the array contains strings or integers or, or whatever. We will assume it's an array of strings. Okay, the first case is if the array is not sorted. So, what's the search algorithm going to be? No, why not? Yeah, binary, a prerequisite of using the binary algorithm is that it's already sorted. So that's going to be the next page where we've got the, the array being sorted. <coughs> we'll come back to that also in a minute. Um, okay, so how else would you, <coughs> would you search for an element in an array which is not sorted? Yeah. Okay. So explain lin linearly very quickly. Yeah. Okay. A so-called. Are you bothered about duplicates? 
duplicates don't matter because all we're okay. interested in is whether it occurs in the array or not. So in this particular case, duplicates don't um, cause problems. And yeah, as, as you say, in the worst case, if you don't, if you don't find the, the item you're looking for, you're going to have to go right through the array. If you don't find it until the last position, again, you have to go right through the array. So, algorithm description, nice and simple. Nobody, I hope, has problems with that. Okay, thinking about how long it's going to take. If it's absent, n comparisons. We have to look right the way through the array before we can be sure it's not there. If it is present, the best case is one comparison. The first thing we look at, we find it. The worst case is it's right at the end. And the average case, well, if you do it lots and lots of times, it could be in the first position, the second position. So let's assume we do <coughs> n searches for something that is there. It could be in the first, the second, the last. So on average, n comparisons, so n items, each in a different position, work out the average, and it turns out to be roughly n over 2. Add up the total number of comparisons that you've done. You had to do one for the thing that was in the first position, two for when it was in the second, n when it was at the end. So you add up the total number, divide by the number of items you've been looking for to find the average, and that comes out at roughly n over 2. So how do we judge the, the complexity? Well, using the scale that we were talking about last week, it's order n. We look for the highest power of n in the uh, term that we're interested in. There's no n squared, there's no n cubes or anything like that. And we throw away any multiplying factor. So this thing is order n. On our scale, it is slower than something which takes log n comparisons, but faster than something that takes roughly n squared comparisons. So the efficiency of this particular search is order n. Everyone happy with that? Okay, what if the array is sorted? Well, we could still use the linear search approach. How would the algorithm change? I know what you mean. How am I going to know where it is? Well, if you find the first item and the first, the first item is... Oh, no, you 
it's no, it's it, it isn't going to work like that. It's not where you start that will change. What's going to change? Where you can stop. You start at the beginning, compare that with what you're looking for, and keep going until you find something that is bigger than what you're looking for. And you can stop at that point because you know it's not there. So again, start at the beginning, move through one position at a time, each time comparing what you're looking for with the current position. It'll either be less than, in which case you're going to move on to the next one, equal to, in which case you can stop, or bigger than, in which case you can also stop, because it's not going to be in the, the rest of the, the array. Okay, everyone happy with that algorithm? If we do the analysis, well, it's going to be a slight improvement, perhaps, but it's not a big enough improvement for our approach to measure. It might be the difference between, when it's not there, doing n comparisons, which is what we had to do before, to doing, on average, n over 2. So, it's only an improvement when the thing is not there, and it's just a very small improvement. It doesn't change the overall order. It's still going to be roughly n, order n comparisons. So, this improvement, our scale can't measure it. It's a coarse scale. But, if it is sorted we can do a binary search and we know from what we saw last week with the, the, the poisons that doing a binary search can make significant improvements and essentially what you do is you have a look at the middle value and depending upon whether that is bigger or smaller than your target you can then cut in half the size of the array that you're looking for. You start off with a huge array. After one comparison, you then know if it's going to be in the top half or the bottom half. So one comparison, you cut the size of the array that you're looking for in half. And you can keep doing that. So before a comparison was sort of only eliminating one element, now a comparison is eliminating half of the array that you're looking for. So the size where it could possibly be goes from n initially to n over 2 to n over 4 and it's constantly being cut down till eventually it's just 1. So how many comparisons are we going to do? Well, it's how many comparisons you need to cut something in half until it reaches 1. And, as I said last week, in computing we usually cheat at this point. We say, let's assume that the array is a power of 2. So it's 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, something like that. Because that then gives us a nice, neat answer to what we're, we're looking for. And it'll be log 2. 
So 32 is 2 to the power 5. In other words, 5 is log of 32. So to search 32 items, we need 5 comparisons. 64 items take 6. Last week we had 128, and that takes 7. So that's number of comparisons is log 2n. That's our complexity. And as you can see, that's a significant improvement over something that's of n complexity. Okay. Um, if I've got an array and I'm going to look for something, it's obviously much better if the array is sorted. My linear search on the unsorted array is slow. So my solution is you give me a an array, I'll sort it, and then I'll use binary search. Good advice or bad advice? Depends whether you're going to iterate a number of times with the same array. Okay, depends if you're going to do a number of searches on the same array. Why? You might take longer to sort it than you to search, just Yes. Because the sorting process is roughly well, a simple sort. Anyone know what the simple sort complexity is? Bubble sort, something like that? It's only last week since we looked squared. at it. Yeah, bubble sort is n squared. Some of the, the more sophisticated sorts are n log n. So if you're just doing one lookup, the sorting time is going to be n log n. Which is better, an n or n log n? n log n. <coughs> <Not> n. <laughs> yes. Um, even though log n is small, yeah. still multiplying n by something that's positive is going to make it worse. So um, just searching using a linear search, order n. Sorting and then doing a, a binary search order n log n, n, n log n, you'd go for the n every time. So if you're just doing one comparison, one search, it doesn't make sense to sort the array. If you were doing roughly n comparisons, then it would. Okay, we'll come back to that idea of spreading the cost. Right, so let's just have a look at getting binary, uh, binary search correct. Um, I'm going to be looking for the element 12 in that array. Of course, you already know where it is, but the computer doesn't. So we start off with... Um, we've got eight elements, so I'm going to start off keeping a lower and an upper bound. The lower bound is zero, and I'm going to make the upper bound eight. So what I am saying is that if 
the thing I'm looking for is in the array, it's at a position which is greater than or equal to my lower limit. So my lower position is zero. If this thing is in the array, it's possibly in the lower position, all the way up to, but not including, the upper position. So my eight is, if you like, just outside of where the, the thing is allowed to be. And that's why, initially, it's actually outside of the array. So I'd better make sure that I never look at that actual position. Okay, so my original bound is from 0 to 8. Everything, the only positions where this can be is 0 up to but not including 8. In other words, 0 to 7, which is what we've got. Okay, so everyone happy with my definition of the upper bound? It's the one more than the last position where the thing could be. Okay, so first iteration, it could be anywhere within that array. The midpoint, add these up, divide by 2 gives me 4. That's the next place I'm going to, to look. Then, I know after I've done my comparison that it can't be down here. It could be in here. We'll see exactly what the, the comparison was in a moment. So it could be here. It's still not going to be in position 8. This time, the midpoint is 6. 4 plus 8 divided by 2 mid value of 14. Okay, it's not in position 6. Indeed, the thing that's in position 6 is greater than what I'm looking for, so it must be in the, the smaller half, the left-hand half of the array, which is positions 4 or 5. Repeat the, the process again. My last thing, it could be in two positions. One more comparison, and there's just one position where it could be. So all I need to do now is look in there and see if I found it. Okay, so... And indeed it is. What a surprise. Okay, here's my algorithm. going to go round in a loop each time working out the middle position checking the value of the middle position and then changing either the lower bound or the upper bound Each time the upper bound changes, 
I know that the item can't actually be in that position because the value that I've looked at is greater than the thing that I'm looking for. With the lower bound, it could be there because the item that I'm looking for, the item at this position, is not greater than the target, so it could be equal to the target or it could be less than. So I said at the beginning, it could be at position lower, it can't be at position upper. And each time round I have kept that true. So I keep going round this until the range has shrunk so that lower plus one is equal to upper. So we've got lower, we've got upper next to it. It can't be in upper, so if it's in there at all, it must be in the lower position. So when I fall out of this loop, if it's there at all, it must be in the lower position. Do a quick comparison to see if it is, and then do whatever I, I need to do. Right, so set it up so that I've got my lower and upper bounds. Could be in lower not allowed to be in upper, keep chopping the range in half, maintaining it so that it could be in lower but not in upper, until eventually the range is just one element, and then see if the thing is there. Okay, does the algorithm make sense? Is it the algorithm that you've seen before? You've seen binary search before. Yours is uh, different, um, Manuel. Okay. You you could do it recursively by um, searching the the top half or the the bottom half. Um, we will come on to to that the next week or the, the week after. Okay, anyone else got any other differences that they've seen? The most common difference that people raise is that you check to see if it's equal inside the loop as well. So you check to see if it's greater than you check to see if it's equal, and then you stop doing the loop if it is equal. Is that better? Because if you keep checking to see if it's equal, if you find it, you'll stop the loop sooner. It's a trade-off. Yes, if you find it earlier, you will do fewer loops, but each time round the loop, you're doing two comparisons instead of my one. So the trade-off um, is actually going to be, which is better, is actually going to be fairly narrow and likely to be much difference between them. They will both be of the same 
order, which is log n. The answer is relatively little. In fact, if anything, it might be more expensive because when you don't find it, you've done twice as many comparisons. Okay, and this is how I argue that the thing is correct. I've set it up initially so that if it is in the table at all, it's got to be between lower and upper, with possibly the lower position being valid, with it being there. It can't be in the upper position. When I work out my mid, because I'm adding the, the two together and dividing by two, the middle position also must be between lower and upper. As long as lower is less than upper, when you add them together and divide by 2, you can never get a value that's equal to upper. But if you add, say, 2 and 3 together and divide by 2, you get 2. So the middle point, the so-called midpoint, could actually be equal to that. Each time round the loop, lower gets closer to upper. Whether I move lower up to the middle, or whether I move upper down to the middle, inevitably, each time round the loop, lower and upper must be getting closer together. This tells me that the loop is likely to stop. When I leave the loop, the condition at the end that says stop, is that upper is equal to lower plus 1. So if the thing is present in the, the loop at all, it's either in the lower position or nowhere, which is what my little test at the end checks to see. It just looks to see if what I've got there is equal to. So that's the only time I do a test for equality, right at the end, to check to see if the thing is really there. That is an argument that my algorithm is correct. If we were going to be looking at proving programs were correct, we'd be looking at translating that into more mathematical notation and showing step by step that it is going to be true. Okay. Are you happy to accept the, the verification that the, the program is likely to be correct? Talked in terms of narrowing the range down and then checking when the range is set to a single item. Right, the next problem is one that we're going to look at some more in the tutorial. And it's about partitioning an array. It's about taking the elements in the, the, an array 
and reorganizing them so that all of the things that are less than a particular value are to one side and all the things that are greater than a particular value are to the other side. So if we take this data and I say I want to partition it about the value 5, then what we have here is a valid partition. Everything that is less than or equal to this position is less than or equal to 5. Oh my god. <laughs> I think I can see a counterexample to that. Um, it's almost a correct <laughs> partition. Right, you get the idea. Um, must have been something particularly interesting on the telly at, at this point. <laughs> if we assume that that 3 was really an 8... Now, okay, the question I want is, if it were an 8, would that be the only valid partition? Well, okay, is it the only valid partition around the 5? And the answer's no. These numbers could be in a different order. Anything down here could be reordered, and it would still be a valid partition. Anything up here, including this very large 3, could be reordered and it would still be a valid partition. So it's not a sort and the order that things are in, whether they're in the bottom bit or the top bit, doesn't matter. So there are a number of different possibilities. Even though we pick a, the same number, it is possible that the right answer could be different. All that's important is that everything up to this point is less than or equal to 5 and everything afterwards is greater than 5. And you might say, well, why do you want to, to do that? Why not simply sort the thing? And the answer is, if you can partition an array efficiently, you can actually use that to sort it. The idea is that you partition it and then you sort the bottom bit and the top bit. And if you've done a valid partition, you're effectively only having to, you know, if you've done a valid partition, then sorting the bottom and then sorting the top will give you a correct sort. And it's a similar sort of thing to our binary search because partitioning about five, we're chopping the array roughly in half. And then we're sorting one half and sorting the other. So it's a bit like our binary search. Chop the array in half and then search one bit or the other bit. 
slightly different because we're going to be search we're going to be doing something with with both bits but it's a similar sort of idea and it turns out that that can give us a very quick method of sorting um, so quick that when it was published it was given the name quicksort it is in practice one of the fastest ways of of sorting um, chunks of, of memory. Right, the partition, the reorganizing, can be done in linear time. And if we take that in combination with chopping in half each time, it turns out that the quicksort algorithm is n log n n to do the partition and then log n because you're chopping it in half each time and there'll be log n times that you can do that. So doing a partition is a potentially important algorithm. It's part of quicksort. It can also be used for other things like finding the, the middle value very quickly. form of partition is known as the, the Dutch national flag algorithm. Um, a very famous computer scientist, a guy called Dijkstra, um, used this as a sort of programming example or programming test. And the idea was you had three elements. In fact, it was sort of you had um, it's like a bucket with um, little balls in and the balls could either be red, white or blue and you had a little robot and the idea was that the robot would move up and down having a look at the, the balls in the buckets and move them around until it was sorted into the, the same colours as the Dutch national flag um, which I assume is red, white and, and blue. And the idea of course is to do that as efficiently as possible. Right, now to actually sit down and write that algorithm can be quite complicated. And it can be one of those things where you almost get it right and then you try a different pattern, a different initial pattern and it stops working. So what we're going to try to do is to work through it and reason about um, how we can design an algorithm that will get it correct. And just as I did with my binary search, I'm going to maintain something that doesn't change. With the binary search, it was that if the number's in the array, it's between lower and upper. And I kept fiddling with lower and upper, but all the time I kept true the fact that the element was, if it's present, it's between these two. With this one, I'm going to have three pointers. And everything to the left of the red pointer 
is going to be red. Okay, so that's true in this position. Anything that's to the left of the red pointer is red. Well, there isn't anything to the left of the, the red pointer, so it has to be true. Anything to the left of the white pointer, up to and including the red pointer, is going to be white. And again, that's true in this position because there is nothing to the left of the white pointer. <coughs> Similarly, the other end, everything to the right of the blue pointer is blue. Um, things that come between the white and the blue, in fact, at the moment, everything in this array, so between the, the white and the blue, including things that the white is currently pointing to, including whatever the blue pointer is currently pointing to, they're unknown. I've not looked at them yet. So my idea is going to be, I'm going to maintain these things true, and I'm going to trundle through the array, keeping that true all the time, but gradually trying to reduce the distance between the white pointer and the blue pointer, because they're the things that aren't known. Okay, let's see how this works. There's my starting position. And the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to have a look at the first unknown item, which is the item that the white pointer is pointing to. That's blue. So what do I need to do to make sure that I maintain my invariant but put that blue one in the right position? Move it to the right of the blue pointer. Move it to the right of the, the blue pointer. How can I do that? Well, one way of doing that is to swap the thing that the blue pointer is currently pointing to. So that'll move a white one there blue one over there, and then move the blue pointer down by one, so that the blue thing is now to the right of the blue pointer. Okay, so, we've already checked that the algorithm is look at the white pointer, swap the thing that it's looking at to the right position, and then make any adjustments to keep my invariant true again. So that should give us that. I've swapped the two end elements, and I've moved the blue pointer down by one. I can then do a, the next comparison, which would be this white one. That's white, so what do I need to do to maintain the, the invariant? Move the white pointer up. So I actually did two steps there, rather than just the, the one. The first one was to swap and move the blue pointer down. Then I had a look at what the white pointer was then pointing to. That was white, so I just moved the, the white pointer on by one. Again, my invariant is still true. Everything to the left of the red is red. 
nothing there, so that's okay. Everything to the left of the white, everything to the left of this, up to and including the red pointer, is white. And everything to the right of the blue pointer is blue. This I haven't looked at. That I haven't looked at. What's going to happen next? I'm going to look at that red square. What am I going to have to do with that? Swap it with the white one. Exactly so. Swap it with the white one. And then move the white pointer up. And move the red pointer up. So that everything to the left is red. Everything to the left of this up to here is white. And so on. And each time round, either the white pointer is increased. Last two, we saw the white pointer being increased. Or the blue pointer is decreased. So each time round, the white and the blue are going to get closer and closer together. So if we keep going, um, we swap that one with the one in the blue pointer. Since they were both blue, it doesn't look very different. But we now know that this one is blue. Swap it with that one. Move the blue pointer down. Same again. Then we've got a red one. Swap it with the thing that the, the red one is pointing to. And move. Which I haven't done. Move them up. Like that, so I've, I've just doubled that. Those two lines are the you'd, same. You'd have thing. to swap the red with the red again because the red pointer has to be white. That's the reason you've done that. Where? Because everything, uh, everything up to the white, including the red pointer, is supposed to be white, so you'd have to swap the red with the red, which is why you've got it doubled. Ah. Uh, no, I, don't, I, think, no, I, think, I think it's a mistake. From this one, not sure actually. I need to, to check through. I've done, I've done two steps again, have I? With the swapped it with the blue and then brought the um, the blue down. Okay. I hope the algorithm is clearer than my explanation of it. Yeah, everyone reasonably happy with what's going on? Okay, so that's how it looks. Set them up, set the variables up, then go round in a loop. At each point, you check what the white pointer is pointing to. The thing that you've got in, that the white pointer will be pointing to will be either red, white, or blue. If it's blue, Shift it up to the blue end, move the blue pointer down. If it's white, simply move the white pointer along by one. If it's red, swap the white thing, swap the red thing with whatever the red pointer is pointing to, and increment both of them. Both move along. Each time round the, the loop, either this one gets smaller, or the white one gets bigger. So eventually, they must be equal and we will drop out of the loop
Okay. In the, the practical class, we'll be doing the partition, which is similar to, to this. Um, anyone who fancies a, a go at implementing that for themselves without sort of just taking and copying this, have a look at it and see if you can make a faster algorithm. What's the efficiency of this algorithm? If I've got n items, how many comparisons am I going to be doing? Is it n? Yeah. Each time around the loop, I'm putting one element into the right position. So I'm going to be sweeping through each time putting one element into the right position. It's got to be n. Okay, sets. Can I just see how many of you have come across sets before? Right, so there's nobody who's going to claim that they don't know anything about sets. Good. Right, a set is a collection of items. There's no order. And the key thing about it is that an item is either in the set or it's not. So there is a set of, of three numbers. There is a set of a couple of strings. This or that represents the empty set, a set that happens to have nothing in. The universe is, if you like, the type of the set. It's the collection of possible things that could be in the set. And you can't just work that out just by looking at the set. What's the universe of this? Integers. It could be. Maybe. Or it could be positive numbers. Or it could be numbers between... 1 and 4. So the universe tells you what the possibilities are. You can't simply look at this and say, ah yes, I know what the universe is. You have to be told that. The universe of this could be the set of numbers <coughs> plus a pork sausage. Um, that's until you know what it is. You can't just work it out. Typically, the universe may be a type, like integers. It could be a subtype, positive integers, integers between 5 and 32, whatever. You can also have finite sets and infinite sets. What's the difference? Upper limit to what? To the highest number you could possibly have in that set. To the number of elements. Yeah, the key thing is the number of elements. It is actually possible to have an infinite set that's got a, a fixed upper limit. So it's not the, the upper limit in terms of values, it's in terms of the number of elements. This, if we assume from the dot, 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 and as we'll see later, there is a problem with the dot, 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 because your assumption is not necessarily the same as mine. 
But if we assume that this is what? What sort of set is this? Hmm. I sort of assumed you'd tell me immediately what that was. N squared. Yeah, the set of square numbers. Right, if we assume that this is the, the set of square numbers, then it is an infinite set. Okay, the, the set operations is an element of. What does that tell me? Well, it's, a, it's actually a Boolean operator that tells me whether it's true or not that something is in the set. So 1 is an element of the set 1, 2 is true. 36 is an element of the set 1, comma, true is, sorry, 1, comma, 2 is false. So it's like our find function. Is this thing in the set? Yes, true, no, false. Cardinality is the number of elements that are in a set. Two for that one, three for that. Union, definition of union. It's a set of all other sets. Or a set of a new set that contains every other set. It is the set of elements that's either in this or in that. So every element that appears in this or in that appears in there. Intersection, if it appears in this and in that, it's in that. There is actually a relationship between or and union and and intersection. Difference. What's in the first one, but not in the second? Notice that 4 isn't in here, but doesn't appear in the, the difference. Difference, as I've defined it there, is not symmetric. So this, take away that, is not the same as that, take away this. There is a different definition of set difference, which is symmetric. Subset and proper subset relate together to sets and say whether one is included in the other. So one is a subset of that, one is a subset of that, one is a subset of one Two, one is not a proper subset, so it's true with the equality beneath. It wouldn't be true, this bit, if you took the equality away. Right, method one of implementing sets is to use an array, an array of Boolean. Each possible element is given a location. So if we're dealing with sets between 0 to, to 10, how big an array would we need? If the universe was 0 to 10, how big an array would we need? 11. 
0.012. It's got to be big enough to hold a Boolean for each possible element. And then we represent a particular set by putting true if the corresponding element is there. I hope it's easy to see how you would do that with 0 to 10. And you can do something similar if the, the elements are, are different, if they're named elements and so on. How do we implement is an element of? If we had an array that represents a set and we wanted to check if zero was in that set, what would we do? Comparison with what, Adam? Right. So. Okay, but we wouldn't need to search through the array. We could just look straight at position zero. If we wanted to see if 10 was in there, we'd look at position 10. It's either true or false, depending upon whether the element is, is there. Okay, so the efficiency of that is just order one. It's a constant. We just have to look at one position. What about union? If we've got two of these sets and we need to combine them, 